You know, we live in an age, as I observe, where many people are feeling lost in life. And in their struggle to find a sense of meaning, they look in the mirror and they ask some hard questions, some like, who am I? Let me give you an example of this, of this struggle and from the human heart to come to an understanding of who am I? It's from popular culture, an example that you might not think about at first, but the way my brain works, I analyze everything to a fault. But last year, there were several movies that came out that were about AI, so artificial intelligence. It's become really the rage in Hollywood. So a lot of these big movies, the plot at its core is about AI. And so movies like Age of Ultron, you know, the Avengers sequel, the villain was artificial intelligence. You have movies like Ex Machina, which also, same thing, was uh, an evil robot. And so what you have in these movies is these robots that are created in the image of man. So man created them, and so these these robots reflect the character of the creator and so these robots are selfish and arrogant and manipulative and even murderous they're reflecting their creator and yet in these movies what you also see is despite this evil humans can come together and it can accomplish much good despite their Flaws. And there are other movies, same thing like Chappie was another example last year of, of another AI movie. And so this, this robot that self-aware is on this journey of discovery. And he's trying to discover, am I good or, or am I evil? And, and in the end, this robot really is neither. He's not good nor is he evil. He's something in between. Again, reflecting the creator, humans. And so when you begin to look at this and you start seeing these messages that are, are being very vividly displayed and communicated in, in our media, we begin to see how our world understands who we are. And so you start getting a picture of the answers. Well, as humans, we have our struggles. So the movies acknowledge that, yes, humans have struggles and can do great evil. But humans are basically good on the inside, deep down inside. They're good. And if we just work hard enough and if we can work together, then we can accomplish so much goodness and defeat evil and find a sense of of meaning and, and purpose in life that otherwise would be somewhat empty and meaningless. So this is a very popular theme in our world today. But as believers, we know from God's word that this philosophy of how humans are is just not true. It's not true. The Bible tells us that at our core, our essence, yes, our soul, who we are deep inside, we are evil. We are corrupted. That we are not essentially good. We are quite the opposite. And we are condemned before a holy God. And who you're desperate for his mercy. And there's only hope found in Jesus, who came, God in the flesh, and died on the cross in our place, and took 
our sin and shame and guilt and was nailed to the cross. And so now we can be forgiven and set free from the requirements of the law. But we have to be continually reminded of the truth of who we are. We have to continually see Jesus every day, every week. We have to come afresh and we need to look mercy in the eyes. We have to because otherwise we get inundated in the messages of this world and we begin to drift away. We must encounter Jesus and allow his love to penetrate our hearts that at times can be so hard. We let his love and his mercy penetrate so deep that then we can experience his healing and his freedom in true joy. So as we continue in this series, Encountering Jesus, looking at different conversations that Jesus had with people in the Gospel of John, today we're in John chapter 4. We were in John chapter 3 last week. We met Nicodemus, who was an elite. He was at the top of the society's food chain. He was highly respected. He was, he was the elite. He was the religious insider. But today we're going to see the opposite, someone who's on the outside, a social outcast. And Jesus meets us where we are, whether you're like Nicodemus and respected or whether you're like this woman that he meets next to a well, who is quite the opposite. Jesus meets us where we are. He encounters this woman from Samaria who was so broken. And he encounters you and me in our brokenness much the same way. And he answers the deepest questions of our soul. And so let me give you the primary truth from this story in John chapter 4 so that we know where we're going, and then we'll begin reading it. And so the primary truth, the main idea from John 4 is that Jesus overcomes our deep idols by satisfying our souls with himself. So we're seeing that Jesus is the one who overcomes our deep heart idols by satisfying our souls with with him. And so at, at its essence, this encounter that Jesus has with this woman is about worship. That's what this is about. And so all of us have deep idols inside of us that our soul just yearns, just wants to bow down to. We were made to worship. The question isn't, will you worship? The question is, who or what will you worship? You can't turn it off. It's part of your your created nature is we will worship. And so because we're corrupted by sin, our hearts just crave idols to bow down to and so but these idols will enslave us and then they'll break us and then they rob us of life and of joy so this story here in john 4 shows us two really important things one it shows us the greatness of our brokenness we see ourselves in this woman of samaria so it's showing us our need it shows us our sin But secondly, it also shows us the greatness of Jesus. It shows us how he comes to free us, liberate us from our idols, heal us, fill us, satisfy us, to transform us, give us new life. And so, yes, the greatness of our sin is seen 
And yet the greatness of Jesus is also on display in this remarkable story. So we're going to see as we read this how Jesus overcomes our deep idols. Because he does. Let's see how he does it. John 4, begin reading in verses 1 through 6. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And so Jesus decides to leave where he was in Judea, which is in the south of the land of Israel. And he's going to head north up to Galilee, which is where he was from, from Nazareth. And so most of Jesus' ministry was in in Galilee, in, in the north. Now, in between the south, Judea, and north, Galilee. In between, there was a region called Samaria. And so it says that he had to, that's what the text says, he had to go through Samaria to get to Galilee. Now, it's important to know the history between Samaritans and Jews here briefly. Over 700 years before, and so in 722 B.C., what had happened is the Assyrian Empire had conquered the then northern kingdom of Israel. And they had taken most of the Israelites captives into exile to modern-day Iraq, back in Assyria. The capital was Nineveh. You remember Jonah. This is those same people. Now, these evil people took other nations that they had conquered and forced them to move to Israel to repopulate the land that they had emptied by exiling them. And so there were some Israelites that had survived the onslaught and were still living. Not many, but there were some that were living in Israel. And so what you had was other nations were brought in and it created mixed races between the other nations and the remnants of Israel that was left there in the land. And so what happened is great animosity, hatred grew over the centuries Because the Jews saw the Samaritans, and Samaritans were the result of these mixed marriages. Again, seven centuries later, they hated each other. And the Jews saw Samaritans as basically half-breed. And so the idea of religious differences and racial differences and hatred over these things is not a 21st century concept. Hating people because they're from a different place or have a different background or different religion is very ancient. And so they hated one another. And so when the text says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria, technically he didn't have to. He could have gone around, but it would have been way out of the way and didn't even make sense to go around Samaria. And besides that, Jesus had to Because he had an appointment, a divine appointment. He was going to encounter a woman that needed to meet him. And so Jesus goes to Samaria, and he goes to the town, Sychar. It was was around noon, so 12, so that's what the six-hour means, six hours from sunrise, and so it was noon. 
and he sends disciples into town to go get some lunch. And he sits there next to this ancient well that was dug by the patriarch Jacob. Now let's keep reading what happens in this encounter, verses 7 and following. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. A Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So Jesus asked the woman for a drink of water. But she's shocked that he's even talking to her because Jewish men did not speak to women in public. That was in the culture. It would not happen. They would not address women in a public setting, and much less a Samaritan. Now, that's double. That's just not going to happen. This is highly unusual. This is radical. But Jesus doesn't even address her, her, her issues with, with society and cultural norms. He gets right to the point because that's what Jesus always does. He doesn't waste words. He says, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, he, of course, is describing profound spiritual truth, just like we saw last week with Nicodemus. Jesus was offering something supernatural, something soul-satisfying. So here, Jesus is offering her the new birth. He's offering her the gift of the Holy Spirit of God. What he's offering her is living water, eternal, soul-quenching. And she answers to Jesus, you have something for me? Really? Where's your bucket? She, she doesn't get it. She's blind. Spiritually, she's blind. She cannot see the glory of who is standing before her. She doesn't realize that this is the king of glory. She doesn't understand that he who is there is one that spoke the world into existence. She doesn't know that she's staring in the face of mercy. This is God himself in the flesh who knows her and her brokenness and yet still loves her. And is offering her to have her soul satisfied and no longer thirsty. She doesn't, she can't see that. All she sees is some Jew, who's kind of weird, talking to her at all in public, who doesn't even have a bucket. And he's offering this water that he can't even get to. But she is, she's not dumb. She's, she's on top of it. 
she senses his tone, and she, she realizes, well, he's claiming to be superior to our patriarch, Jacob. And she says, are you greater than her father, Jacob? Who do you think you are offering me other water besides this awesome water that we have right here that we've had for centuries? Are you greater? And Jesus says to her in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus tells her, ma'am, actually, yes, I am greater other than Jacob. My water is greater than Jacob's water. My well is greater than this well. My gift is greater than the gift of this water that you got from Jacob. What I give is so much more superior. It leads to eternal life. And if you drink the water I give you, you will never see death. He's saying, as a matter of fact, yes, I am greater. I am the beginning and the end. I am God himself, and I have come to rescue you. Yes, I'm greater. Yes, Jesus is greater. And she still doesn't get it. She's so blind. She's still, sin has so blinded her. Sir, give me this water that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She still doesn't see her real need. She's only thinking on her physical needs that she can feel and see. She doesn't know what's going on inside of her. She's not self-aware enough of what's going on. She's so blind. Verses 16 through 19, Jesus says to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. He's like, Whoa, how do you know that? Like, she's realizing this is not just some guy. She's coming to understand that he's a prophet, but he's far more than that. Now, the cultural context is very important for us to understand here. Women are women. That has not changed over the centuries. It always fascinates me how I'll be out in a group, and one lady wants to go to the bathroom, and then they all join her to go to the bathroom. It's like, why, why do you have to go together? Like, do you need help? Like, I don't understand. Why? It's a girl thing. It's part of community. And, and they're going to go freshen up their makeup or go talk about the guys. Sometimes that's not a good thing. But, but they're going to go hang out and talk. That's, that's intrinsic to being a female. That has not changed. Women would go in the morning together to draw water. They, that was a community thing. They would all go in the morning, draw water together, talking about their day, talking about their kids, Talking about their husband and how great he is. Women would get together and talk while they're drawing water for their animals, their kids, and the families for that day. They'd go in the morning because it was not as hot. And they'd enjoy the, the, the community of women just hanging out in this communal place to go talk. But here's a woman who is going at noon alone. She's not going in the morning with, with 
the, the, the group. She's not part of the group, not part of the cool kids. She's not part of the in crowd. She's not welcome. She doesn't want to be there. She doesn't want to be where the women talk. Why? Look at her past. Five husbands, current husband, current boyfriend. She lives with not even her husband. Her life has been marked by shame and failure and sexual sin, sadness, pain, disappointment, long-term patterns of immorality. She was trying to avoid the uncomfortable, awkward social setting with the other women. She just wanted to go get her water in the heat of the day when no one was around so no one else can talk about her or look at her or make faces or say, oh, look who's here. Trying to avoid that. A social outcast. Let me remind you what we're looking at here. The primary truth, let's not, let's not miss what God is revealing in this story, is that Jesus overcomes our deep idols by satisfying our souls with himself. Let's see here as we understand the story how he does that. Number one, he overcomes our deep idols, number one, by revealing your sin. He's going to overcome your deep idols by revealing your sin. Understand here that Jesus is reaching across every possible social barrier, racial barriers, cultural barriers, gender barriers, moral barriers. He is crossing all of them. Jesus simply did not care. It was so radical that he would do this. With someone who was broken and, and addicted and weak, and he's associating with her, and he's reaching out to her, and he's being gentle with her, pointed, speaking truth, but with so much grace and dignity, respecting her, despite her past. And she's a woman, which was unheard of for him to have treated a woman this way. Look, when I, when I look at history, the history of humanity, with how women have been treated is really sad and very painful. In every era, women have been disrespected and abused and used just because they can provide an heir, just because they have a uterus and can provide a child, and so that's what they were for. And so you have, you have women and not, you know, a few centuries ago to think about the queen whenever she was with her husband because that's what she was for, to produce children. That's it. That's what women were for. And other countries that were developed could not vote, had no voice. And, and there's been this history of women being disrespected and looked down upon. And it's actually quite painful. And you have husbands that oftentimes don't treasure and don't value their wives. And so if you're here today and, and, and if you have any kind of a sense of, man, being a woman is tough, I want you to see here that Jesus values women. He values women. He knows your pain and disappointment and frustrations. And Jesus truly loves you. And he thinks being a woman is really great. It was his idea. And so I want every 
lady in this room to know that she is honored, valued, and treasured and matters. You matter to your creator. And Jesus here is loving this broken woman, and it should amaze us how he is pursuing her. And he sees her in her desperate condition. And so what does he do out of mercy? He exposes her sin. He was making her face her, her secret sin that probably that she had tried to forget her past. You know, she had pushed down this pain so far down and into the deepest parts of her heart. And yet, the sinful patterns in her life continued with more men and more men. And Jesus here is revealing her sin. But by offering her living water, he meant to satisfy her soul's deepest longings and deepest thirst. And she didn't even know she was thirsty. She didn't even know her soul was thirsty. And most of us are no different. Most of us don't even recognize that our soul is so thirsty. Why is that? Why do we not even notice our soul is thirsty? It's all about hope. Maybe, maybe you say you're hoping in God. On Friday morning in your home group, publicly, yes, my hope is in Jesus. And you say that. But really, really, if you're honest with yourself, your hope really isn't in Jesus. Perhaps your hope is in having your dreams come true, whatever those dreams are. Maybe your hope is in living a successful or very comfortable life. And that's where your hope really is in. And Jesus is not much more than just an afterthought in your daily life. And yet you can't deny the anxiety or the emptiness that's going on inside of you. And, and so you just tell yourself, the reason why I'm not fulfilled is that I haven't yet reached my goals. I have more work to do. Or you think, well, maybe there's just this painful situation. And as soon as that lets up, as soon as this, this situation finally is resolved, then, then I'm going to be good. Then I'm going to be fulfilled. And so you keep hoping that one day that pain's going to end. You're going to reach those goals, whatever you're, you're trying to get to. And then you're going to be fulfilled. But you find yourself chasing after the wind. And you just, you can never catch it. And, and when that one painful thing passes, oh, there's another one. And as soon as that, oh, there's a new one. And once you reach one goal, there's one more goal. And once you climb the ladder, there's one more rung. It's like you can never quite get there. And, you're, and you think, I'll be fulfilled, I'll be fulfilled just a little bit more. I just need more. And you find yourself saying, I'm trusting in Jesus. I'm hoping in Jesus, but really... You're not. And, and we can live our entire lives never really being honest with ourselves and never really admitting to ourselves the depth of our spiritual thirst. Listen, the problem is that because the soul is thirsty, we're going to 
trying to find ways to satisfy it, to quench that thirst. You're thirsty. You need something to stop it. So it's not a surprise that we turn to sin. We turn to idols to try to fill, to try to satisfy that deep thirst. And so we make intentional choices. We choose to sin. But see, here's the thing. Yes, we all choose rebel against God. Every one of us does. But we have to understand that sin is much more than that. Sin, we can sin unintentionally. It's true. We really can sin without even meaning to do it. You see, sin is a blinding power that wants, that wants to keep us enslaved so that we're so blind like this woman at the well who doesn't even see it. She is, Jesus is right there in front of her and she can't even see her own sin. We're blind. And here's some examples of how this can happen. You can have a man, a husband, who's very controlling and manipulative and his wife is suffering silently and he doesn't even know it. He doesn't even realize what he's doing. But if you talk to her in private, maybe she would open up. But it's so easy to just try to control people and be unaware of what you're even doing that's sinful and destroying your life and your marriage. You can have an alcoholic who gets off of work, and before he knows it, it's like, whoa, I'm, I'm driving to the liquor shop. And he wasn't even thinking about liquor. He just got in his car, and he realizes when he's already halfway there, like, oh, I'm driving to the liquor shop. I didn't even realize it. Or you can have someone that is so addicted to pornography that they log on their computer to check their banking or to check the scores from last night's game. Legitimate, good reasons to get online. And then before they know it, they're suffering from pornography. And it's like, whoa, what happened? I was, I was checking sports scores. And then all of a sudden, you're on the porn site. These just kind of happened. Or some of you, maybe they have anger issues. You just explode. And it's, and it's not like you thought, I'm going to have a very angry response to my child's statements because that statement deserves an angry response. And so I'm going to get angry now. No. It just happens. You just you just explode in anger without even thinking about it. The point is that when we sin and we can do so and fall into these habitual patterns, that it kind of like takes over and you feel like change is just impossible. It's too overwhelming and you feel like you don't have any control over it. But let's just clarify. When we are enslaved to a sinful pattern where you sin without even thinking about it, it just happens. The reason you're in there is because at some point in the past, likely years ago, you intentionally chose to rebel against God. You chose it. You chose that first drink. Yes, 15 years later, you're enslaved and you, but, but, while thinking you're just drinking. Yeah, I agree. It's unintentional. But don't forget 15 years ago when you started. You chose Yes, you just clicked on that site without thinking about it, but the first time you knew what you were doing. You chose to control people. 
And you've done it for so long, you don't even notice it anymore, but it still started with a choice. And then it becomes a pattern. You're enslaved, blind. Years go by, and you don't even know it. And it just becomes normal. This is life. You think this woman ever thought to herself when she was a little girl that she would one day have a divorce number two, number three, number four, number five, and then have a sixth guy? Do you really think that she thought it would turn out that way? You think she would have chosen to have lived this life of habitual sin and failure and pain and disappointment? No. It was just normal. She was just living without even thinking about it. And she had this deep heart idol. I don't know what it was. The text doesn't say likely approval, likely wanted approval of men, and she kept going to different men. But either way, what she had was definitely sexual and relational problems. She had sin in her life. And Jesus here, out of mercy, because he loves her, is exposing her sin. Why? Because sin destroys. Sin devastates. It leaves us so far from God and destroys our relationships and out of his mercy, he reveals our sin. So we can then run to him and find freedom. And so he overcomes our deep idols, number one here, by revealing our sin. Number two, he overcomes our deep idols. Number two, he reveals the solution. So one, he reveals the sin, but then secondly, he reveals the solution to our sin. Verses 20 through 24 in this same account. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming where neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so she realizes that he's a prophet. But she doesn't, again, she doesn't know that he's so much more than a prophet. He is God in the flesh. And so she asks the big theological debate question of the day. And she says, we Samaritans have built a temple on Mount Gerizim, and we claim that you should worship here in Samaria. You Jews have a temple in Jerusalem, and you say, no, you have to worship there. Who's right? And so she, she wants to talk about a theological issue that is important and does matter, but that doesn't really apply to her situation. She's getting a little bit uncomfortable with Jesus revealing her sin, and so she wants to deflect and, and not have to face the reality of her brokenness. And we all do the same thing. Same thing. You meet with someone to talk about how it's going, and they begin to ask questions maybe about 
how it's going and you get uncomfortable and so you just bring up another issue so that you can keep hiding and keep, keep your sin insulated so that no one knows what's going on. And so she doesn't really want to face it. But Jesus is so gracious. He actually answers her question. He respects her. And he loves her. He says, okay, you're asking a legitimate question. It's not really your issue, but it is. It is, and it applies. And so Jesus, being Jesus, says, the day is coming when there will be no need for a physical temple in order to have access to God. You won't need it. He's revealing the solution to our sin problem, uh, our desires for these idols. He says the hour is coming and now has come. It's here with him. When true worshipers will worship the Father and Spirit and truth. So he says you must be born of the Spirit in order to worship God. And so you must come through the truth. Jesus is the truth. He would say it later in John 14, 6, I am the truth the way, and the life that comes to the Father, but through me. And so Jesus is the truth. And so we worship him because the Spirit gives us new life, this new birth where we're raised from the dead spiritually. And then our human spirit is made alive, interwoven with God's Holy Spirit. This is a miracle. It's divine, but it's true. And so we worship because of God's Spirit, giving our spirits life through Jesus' Spirit and truth. And so we must be born of the Spirit. And so you can't worship God unless you're born again from above through His Spirit. The only way you can worship Him is to have Him in you, to repent, to trust in Jesus and have Him change your heart. Sin is our problem. So that's the problem. It's what condemns us to hell and keeps us far from Jesus. But Jesus' work on the cross is the solution. Jesus is the solution. His death and resurrection is the greatest event in human history. We'll celebrate that next week when we we talk about Good Friday, Easter, the resurrection. And because of resurrection, he offers us forgiveness and hope and joy by taking away our sin and giving us new hearts where we can now know him and enjoy him. We have access to God. We can draw near to the throne of grace because We are now made priests, and we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He is in us, and so we can have God's presence, and so we can be true worshipers of God. And yet, we're not in heaven yet, and so we still have a worship problem. We know we can worship God, and yet we still find ourselves wanting to bow down to our idols that will satisfy us. And so our hearts just say, just one more I just need one more. And so idols are marked by things like darkness, lies, slavery, fleeting pleasure, pain, and ultimate death. But worshiping Jesus in spirit and truth, treasuring Jesus is marked by light and truth and freedom and life and true pleasure and lasting joy. Not fleeting pleasures and not death, but lasting joy and life. This is what it is to worship him in spirit and truth. And we must recognize that left to ourselves, we are powerless to change our own hearts. We can't do this. God's spirit must do this. We can't change our desires. We can't fix ourselves. We can't do that. Only God 
through his spirit, does that. The solution is Jesus. Resting in him. Worshiping him. Truly entrusting your soul to him. He is greater and he is better. So we cry out to him to save us. And then once we have experienced that salvation, we continue to cry out to him every day to help us, to sustain us. And the solution here is focusing on Jesus, a person, reading his word, prayer. I can't tell you how important it is to pray to have freedom from your idols. If you're not reading, meditating on his word and praying and having his presence fill you, you have no hope to overcome your deep idols. It's all about Jesus. So he reveals our problem and the solution. Number three, as we wrap things up here. He overcomes our idols, number three, by calling for surrender. He calls for surrender. Verses 25 and 26. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is amazing. Like, this is just absolutely mind-blowing. She's still confused. And she, she hopes that one day the promised Messiah will come. And he's going to answer the deepest, hardest questions and, and relieve all fears and bring in salvation. And he tells her that he is Messiah that he is the promised one. He is the son of man who has come down from the heavens to defeat the enemy. He is a conquering king. He is the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. He is the son of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. He is the king. He is the promised one who will bring in salvation, defeat the enemy, and bring us to the new heavens and the new earth. He is him. He's come, and he's there, and he's here. Now, through his spirit, we have his presence. And he's come to rescue us from our sin, and to give us life in abundance. And when she hears this, I mean, it's amazing. Next few verses, verse 27, just then, when he, when he tells her this, his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with the woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking to her? I mean, it is Jesus, and no one's going to question him. Verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who has told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of town and were coming to him. She was transformed by encountering Jesus. When you come face to face with God himself. You realize that you belong to him, that you owe him everything. And despite how much you and I rebel against him, Jesus still loves you and still pursues you and has not given up on you. And he does call to surrender. He is still Messiah. He is still the king. And when I say surrender, I'm talking about giving up your agenda for your life, what you want it to look like. I'm talking about with your whole soul really trusting Jesus. Because the agenda he has for your life is better. 
His vision is better than your vision for your life. I'm talking about giving up control over having everything dictated by you and letting him through his word, spirit leading you, let him dictate your life. And let him give you new dreams that might be totally different from your dreams for your life. I would have never dreamt in a million years that I would be in Abu Dhabi. Like five years ago, I could not have even found this place on the map. And I live here. It's like God's plan for my life was so much bigger and better and more satisfying than the plans I could have ever come up with. There's just no way. And so we trust him that the plans that he has for you are better, even if they're different, they're better than the plans you would have for yourself. I'm talking about entrusting your soul to Jesus. You can experience this freedom from your heart idols. But he won't change you right away. Let's just be clear. He won't. Why? Because it should be enough for us that he is God and we simply trust him. And when we cry out to him, and when we are relying on him instead of ourselves, which usually ends up being that addictive, you know, sinful habit, we rely on him more than on other things. It's glorifying to him. God wants us to battle daily as we trust him. Because without these daily struggles, we'd have no reason to call out to him. Let's just be honest. If we didn't have our struggles, we wouldn't call out to him. And we wouldn't cry out, I need you. Jesus, I so need you. We wouldn't call out to him. But when we do, when we cry out, I need you, that is the essence of faith. And his mercies really are new every morning. And so may Jesus be so real to us. That we're so close to him, walking with him on a daily basis. So deeply knowing him and profoundly trusting him and worshiping him, spirit and truth. No matter the circumstances. He is the only source of life. I love how the story ends in verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. She was transformed. She tells other people. And many others surrendered to Jesus as well because of her. May we be so captivated by Jesus that we just naturally tell others about how great it is to know him. If you don't know him today, you can. Come talk to me. I would be honored to lead you to Jesus so you can see and experience this mercy. All you have to do is with all of your heart, repent of your sins, run away from that, and just trust Jesus. Come and taste living water. You'll never be thirsty again. Pray with me. Father, we are humbled that we could know you and be known by you, that you would reach out to us, that you would come rescue us, that you would remove our blinders, allow us to see our sin and see you, Jesus, and just surrender our lives to you. And that is our heart's desire.
May we be a church that is so focused on you, Jesus, that the result is many others believe in you because of our testimony. We praise you for you are worthy. Praise you, Jesus. We just pray for your sake in your name. Amen.